The church this time of year actually celebrates Easter, meaning she focuses on texts pertaining to the resurrection for seven Sundays. With the seventh Sunday being next week, the celebration of the Ascension. So, today, the sixth Sunday of Easter, we're going to look at another magnificent resurrection text, namely our Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 25. We'll make three points. They're on the back inside page of your bulletin. Communion, conquest, consummation. So the text is the Isaiah 25 text. First then, communion. So Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, that is Mount Zion, in the ancient world, mountains were considered to be the homes of the gods, the places where they dwelt. And Zion, Mount Zion, little hill just outside Jerusalem, Right, Zion and the location of the temple, that is the place. That's the place that has a geographic note here. That is the, the location where Yahweh, the covenant Lord of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth, that is the place where he places his name. Meaning the presence of his shining radiant glory in the holy of holies. This is the place, Zion, the location where our text transpires. It's the same Zion, it's the same mountain that the nations stream into in Isaiah chapter 2 and in numerous other texts in the prophets where they foresee the glory of the messianic age. This Zion fulfilled in the new covenant in Christ, is a heavenly locale. Zion is not simply the church. She is the church gathered around Christ in heaven. We saw that this morning in the New Testament lesson from Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. So Zion, the city, the temple, these are all now heavenly realities, typified by the earthly realities, pointed to, shadowed forth, prefigured by ancient Zion. They are now where Jesus, the high priest, is, and he is in heaven. Indeed, your life, your life is hidden within there. And we are promised in the text, and there are no promises more grand than this short little passage. We are promised in the text that on this mountain, the Lord Almighty, quite literally this is the Lord of hosts, he will prepare a banquet. You might remember on Good Friday we saw that the gospel, even in the last gasping, dying words of Jesus is about the hospitality of God. The Lord of hosts is the consummate host. And the Lord of hosts is also 
the Lord of the hosts of heaven and the armies or the hosts of the earth. The name here, Lord of hosts, brings into view this vision of God as victorious military commander, mighty, triumphant over all. This one on Zion. To celebrate his victory, hosts a feast. And you'll notice in the text, it's a universal, global feast. It's a Catholic feast. A feast for all peoples. The theme is shot through the text. All peoples, all nations, all faces, all the earth. And what a feast this is. When the Lord of hosts holds a feast, he doesn't skimp. He's not a miser. He spares no expense. He assumes that his people will have a taste for the finest things. It's lavish. It's extravagant. It's overflowing with abundance. It's a feast, the text says, of rich food. Rich food full of marrow. Or as the NIV puts it, the best of meats. It's a banquet of aged wine. The ESV says well-aged wine. The expensive kind. Right? That only a fruitful creation and wise cultivation and the fullness of time can produce. Now, these images should inform the way we think about feasting and hospitality. But, but, they are metaphors. What is in view here is joyful, embodied, intimate fellowship with God and his people. It is primarily your spiritual taste buds, your spiritual discernment, which need to be developed and sharpened if you're going to enjoy this feast. Isaiah 55 makes it clear that when the Lord summons us to eat and to drink, the feast consists of things like this. Abundant pardon. Steadfast and sure love. Psalm 36 puts it this way. Your people feast on the abundance of your house. But you give them to drink of your river of delights. In John 6, our Lord Jesus talks a lot about eating and drinking. And it's clear there that it consists in communion with the risen and the exalted Christ. The choicest then, the choicest of God's stores, as the hymn puts it, in this age are word, sacraments, prayer, praise, fellowship. This is the feast. But these things, and we must never lose sight of this, these are all ways the Spirit of God mediates or sends or brings God's own indestructible, ineffable, transcendent, triune life to your soul. Right? God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit is our end, our 
portion, which is a food word. God is your portion. He is your inheritance, which is a land word. Our all in all. All the banqueting language of Scripture ends in seeing God's face in light and in glory. So this banquet here is hosted by the Lord of hosts on Zion for all peoples. But there's a question, right? Why is the Lord of hosts hosting a banquet? Why are the nations feasting? What victory has been wrought that the banquet is celebrating? And that brings us to the second point, which is the conquest. And here we can see why, if you haven't picked it up yet, this is a glorious Easter text. On this mountain, he will destroy, the text says. He will swallow up. That's eating language. He will eat up. The shroud, the covering that enfolds all peoples. It's depicted here as a sheet or a veil spread out over all nations. So this this veil, this sheet, this universal shroud or covering is death itself. He will swallow up death forever. And you should be interested in no ideology or no form of Christianity that doesn't do that. There's a deep, sober realism in this text that's necessary. It's it's important to get this right because it's a kind of prelude kind of entryway into the banquet. It's a prelude to the exuberance of this untainted feast. And it's necessary lest we stain the Christian hope and turn it into some sort of shallow uh, shallow and sentimental thing, which happens a lot. The text is clear. The text is clear that death is the Death shares no honors here, right? Death is the pervasive, ever-present reality which hangs over and haunts all peoples. It's a pall, a shadow, a veil, right? It blocks. It shunts off the light of genuine human joy. And we are magnificent at averting our eyes from this. You know, keeping busy going about as if we ourselves were permanent features of the landscape and we were going to live millions of years instead of being puffs of smoke. And so we buffer, right? We're buffering our psychology all the time off from death. There's almost no human social phenomenon that you could not analyze as a form of this buffering. As if death were just an unpleasant footnote. And not the basic pervasive reality in this dust and bones factory that we call the earth. 
And until this can be seen and squarely faced, like the prophet does, for the horror and the loathsome, sickening enemy that it is, then resurrection joy can never ring out in fullness. It'll always be spiritualized. Right? Until the yearning of the church is for the emptying out of cemeteries and the vindication of martyrs and a justice which reconciles the whole past, then it's very hard to hear this text. Resurrection becomes a sort of spiritual metaphor for a new beginning in my soul. The Lord of hosts, the mighty commander, is here the one who conquers, who finally who definitively shatters and swallows up death. This is what Christianity teaches and promises. This is the unspeakable Easter glory. And yet, I want you to notice this. The language here is speaking of the future resurrection of the dead. The future liberation of the whole groaning creation. That's why this text is read in the Easter season as a complement to Jesus' own bodily resurrection. This text is speaking of the full harvest of which the resurrection of Jesus himself is just the first fruits. This text is cited in the New Testament at a very prominent, important, and critical place in the most important chapter on the resurrection in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to how Paul uses our text, Isaiah 25, in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, When, that's the time, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. That is a citation of our text. Paul cites this text, Isaiah 25, of the future. Then, general resurrection from the dead. Then death, the last enemy, is swallowed up forever. And Paul continues, then we sing the taunt, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is thy sting? Then, what we have received by faith in the risen Jesus becomes sight. It is then a permanent, global, universal fact. The curse is gone, no disease, no dying, no death. Death is swallowed up forever. And because it's swallowed up, we can swallow up the banquet that's before us. This is the full flower of the Easter promise. And with this conquest, you'll see this in the text as well, comes the Lord's most tender consolation. The text says, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. This is one of my favorite images. It's a touching and tender image. You find it in Revelation 7. In Revelation 21, it's used of the redeemed in glory, where God personally moves, if you will, from person to person, from face to face, 
and dries all tears, every last tear from every face of his suffering people. And what is beautiful about this image is that in it, there's no rationalizing of evil. There's no, ra- there's no tr- attempt to explain it. There's no fitting it into some grand general pattern. As if on the last day, God's going to say, I'm going to explain to you why all this evil had to occur. You know, Reformed people talk like this a lot. I think we should be much more chastened about it. Because what happens, right, what happens on the final day is that God does not explain death or injustice. He simply obliterates them. He swallows them up. He wipes tears away. He makes all things new. And that should be good enough for us. At this point, you can see this at the end of verse 8. It says the reproach of his people. Their shame is taken away from all the earth. The suffering, the reproach, the shame, the weakness, the bearing of the cross of the church is removed finally here. So it is having done this, having swallowed up death, the veil, the shroud that covers the cosmos, having done that, the Lord of hosts hosts a victorious banquet. The banquet is coincident. It occurs with the destruction of death. He swallows up death so that all the nations can have this feast on Zion. So that's the conquest. And we can see this more clearly now. It means that the banquet is none other than the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's his feast celebrating his final conquest over death where he's the host and he's the bridegroom. So finally, the consummation, verse 9. In that day, the text says, they will say, What day? The day of death's final, complete destruction. The day of the Lord of hosts, cosmic victory being fully unveiled. The day when every tear is dried from every face by the hand of God. On that day, the redeemed will say, surely this is our God. This day is the day of God, the day of his full splendor and revelation, the day of face-to-face, consummate, heightened, you know, escalated, perfected, covenantal communion in an indestructible, immortal bond of fellowship. Surely this is our God. We trusted, the text says. Literally, we waited for him, and he saved us. Yes, we are saved now. But we are saved in hope, Paul tells us. The best, the bulk, and the brightest occurs on this day. It lies in front of us. We are saved in groaning and in longing. We walk by faith and not sight. We see through a glass darkly. We wage an anguished war with sin. All of that is past here in this text. All of it. 
here, he has finally, fully, forever finished what he has started. Here, he has, past tense, saved us. It is this, this, the text says, that we are waiting for. Two times in this text, in the ninth verse, the text says, we have waited for him. In the NIV, it's trusted, but the word is waited. Salvation in this age is permanently, deep down in its DNA, in a posture, in a mood, in a state of waiting. You have turned from idols, Paul says, to serve the living God and what's the first thing Paul says to the Thessalonican church about their conversion? He's talking about the moment of their conversion here. You have turned from idols to serve the living and true God and now I know what we would put in that and. It's not what Paul puts in the and. You have turned from idols to the living God and to wait for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven and from there we eagerly wait a savior who will do what? He will transform our lowly bodies so they are like his glorious body. It is basic to Christian turning to God to be waiting, watching, hoping, yearning for this day. And its absence is one of the great tragedies in the church. It's one of the church's great misfortunes and malformations. We enjoy the benefits we have now. We exult. We do it every Lord's Day. We do it every day. We give thanks. But they are but a down payment on our inheritance. They're the seed. This is the full fruit. Isaiah 25. This is the full Easter hope. And here the text ends with, let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is the praise of the consummation. This is the praise of those whose warfare is over. This is the praise of people who do not live in the shadowlands under the veil of death, which is stretched out over the cosmos. This is the praise of people who've entered the everlasting banquet hall of God in Zion. This is the praise of people who see and declare, surely this is our God. We waited for him. We waited for him. He has saved us. So I want to make three quick points in closing. One for each of the points in the sermon. So first, communion. So Zion, where the banquet occurs, is in heaven. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. But we know from the book of Revelation and from other texts, that at the end of the age, Zion descends. She descends from heaven. She's the centerpiece of the new creation. She comes from above 
from the future, from the age to come, from heaven to earth. It is then that this banquet of all nations and all peoples, this feast on Zion, commences. Of course, we partake of this banquet now, by faith, right, in the Lord's Supper, in communion with God through the Spirit, in hospitality and fellowship with one another. It seems astonishing that we partake of this reality now. How can that be? Well, it's not because it's descended already, because it hasn't. Zion has not descended from heaven. It's rather that you have ascended in Christ there. It is not here. You are there. That's the Hebrews 12 text. You have come to Mount Zion, which is now in heaven. At the end of the age, that Zion descends. We partake of this. In a sense, you're sent forward, up and ahead, into the future, in the ascended Christ, to partake of these things now. This is what Paul means when he says you're seated in the heavenly places in Christ. And there, sursum corda, lift up your hearts, we commune with him. So the Zion to which you've ascended will descend. And when she descends, she will transfigure the cosmos. She will usher in the new creation. And the feast then will no longer be by word or by sacrament or by faith. Right? Word and sacrament and faith, those are not the mode of our destiny. Those are the mode of our pilgrimage. Word and sacrament and faith. Right? The manna stops when Israel enters the land. You know, I've often recommended to you for your devotional life, for the cultivation of your soul, the wonderful Puritan book of prayers called the Valley of Vision. There's one in there that addresses this. It's called Heaven Desired. I'm just going to read a small part of it. The prayer goes like this. May I arrive where the means of grace cease. And I need no more to fast, pray, weep, watch, be tempted, attend preaching and sacrament. That's the point I was just making, right? Preaching and sacrament are pilgrim modal things. They are not the mode of our destiny. We pray to arrive where we don't need to go to church and attend preaching and have Jesus in a a sacramental form. We want the thing. We don't want the sacrament. We get the thing now by faith. We want the thing by face. And the prayer goes on to say where there's no grief or sorrow or sin or death or separation or tears, or pale face, or languid body, or aching joints, or feeble infancy, or decrepit old age, or pining sickness, or gripping fear, or consuming cares, where there is personal completeness, where the more perfect the sight, the more beautiful the object, the more perfect the appetite, the sweeter the food, the more musical the ear, the more pleasant the melody, the more complete the soul, the more happy the joys, where there is full knowledge of thee. That's how Reformed Puritans pray. Isaiah 25 is at the heart of that prayer. We have the foretaste now. By faith, we yearn for the full banquet by sight. Secondly, the conquest. It's right here that we see Easter is a cosmic event. The conquest 
of death in Christ's resurrection guarantees that this veil or this sheet over the nations will be lifted. Again, we are raised with Christ now, yet we still die. Our mortal bodies, Paul says in Romans 8, are dead because of sin. 2 Corinthians, right? Our inner man is being renewed. Our outer man decays. There's a shroud. We are awaiting the redemption of our bodies. And so here we see that Jesus' resurrection is the pledge. What's What's it the pledge of? It's the pledge of this scene. This is the scene promised by the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus sets this scene in motion. That's why Paul says, when this perishable has been clothed in the imperishable and this mortal has put on immortality, then we can say, death is swallowed up in victory. Then we sing the taunt of death. So Jesus' resurrection must must make us yearn for the resurrection of all, for the final destruction of death. Otherwise, we fail to grasp its basic significance. So the third point is the consummation. Consummation. For all the nations, all the redeemed, all creation, every suffering, tear-stained face, the fullness of Easter is guaranteed but it is still future. It is guaranteed, but it is still future. We have blessed communion with the Lord now, but we commune as waiting, yearning people stretched out for this day. So Easter is something that we celebrate exultantly now, but this text shows us this is what we want from it. This is what it promises. This is what's built into it. To yearn for, to love, to aspire after, to seek the risen Christ is to seek this day. There's a beautiful collect. It's another short prayer. It's in the Book of Common Prayer. For this very Sunday, for the sixth Sunday of Easter. And it's a wonderful commentary on our text. It says this, O God, you have prepared for those who love you such good things as surpass our understanding. Pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, and this is the key phrase, loving you in all things and above all things, may obtain your promises, which exceed all that we can desire through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Now that is a, is a devotional prayer commentary on this text. To love this risen Christ is to seek after the day when we will say, surely this is our God. We waited for him and he saved us. Then we will say with all the saints from all the nations in this heightened, exalted, immortal, and glorious fullness, let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Amen. Amen.